Welcome back in to the Records and Riffs podcast. Got an interesting topic here today because I got to admit, of all the episodes in the first season, this is the one podcast episode dedicated to an artist whose music I don't listen to. But that's okay, and it's actually what I want to do with the podcast. I want to explore different artists and talk to people that are that are fans of these artists, that know them well, to expand my own boundaries and, and interests and knowledge, and just to get different kind of perspectives. So we're going to talk about Taylor Swift, who is honestly feeling like the most popular musician on the planet at this moment. We're recording this podcast here in September of 2015, and it's coming just a few days actually after Ryan Adams recorded his cover LP of Swift's 1989 record. We're going to get into that. I have the culture editor at Deadspin. His name is Rob Harvilla. You can follow him at Harvilla on Twitter. Very good writer, and he knows his Taylor Swift, and I figured he – listen <laughs> – that is your intro, man. So thanks for coming on. And are, are you ready to to talk some some T Sizzle here? Does anyone call her T Sizzle? I am so lost right now. I can't say that I do personally. I'm sure some people do. <laughs> okay. uh, thanks for having me. This is my first podcast of any kind. That's more than okay. Listen, you're not the first guest in the first season to have only appeared on okay, one good. podcast. So that the, yeah. Better. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're not in unfamiliar territory in terms of other guests. We can start with a number of of ways uh, to go here with with Swift, and I do want to touch on a bunch of stuff because she, in general, she does intrigue me. Even even if I'm not totally into what she does, I, the fact that Taylor Swift has become one of the most powerful women in America, and she's only 25, is certainly fascinating. But we can hit on the Ryan Adams stuff first if you want. So Ryan Adams who one day will probably have a podcast on Records and Riffs dedicated to him, is certainly an intriguing singer-songwriter. Some think he's one of the most talented, uh, and I'm talking like two or three most talented songwriters for the past 20 years. His output, both released and unreleased, is you know could circle the planet. It's so, it's so deep, but he, on a whim, decided, I'm just going to start doing Taylor Swift songs off 1989 that turned into a project and that was released to a lot of acclaim here. I listened to it. I thought it was a Ryan Adams take on a Taylor Swift record. I like some of it. Some of it I wasn't huge on, but I think it was the perfect, (laughs) it was the perfect execution for someone like Ryan Adams to open himself up to another even bigger audience. Because when you consider Rob, the amount of streaming and everything, I mean, Taylor Swift is, it's incredible. She's already sold, by the way, she's already sold more than 40 million records, and she's 25. Like She's on pace. Like If you hit the 100 million record mark, it is a- akin to what used to be 500 home runs in baseball. It- it's-, it's such yeah. rare air, and she's going to hit that by the time she's 35, if not sooner, at the pace she's at. So that's kind of crazy, and that's you know why it was a good idea for Ryan Adams to do this. But what were your thoughts on, on his project and how... His 1989 stacks up to Swift's 1989. Well, this is definitely the most I've seen people talk about him, possibly ever. You yes. Know, I and and you know it's it's a publicity stunt and it's it's sort of self evidently pointless. But I I I think it's actually pretty good. You know, and I think it's pretty interesting. And it's there's a lot of good writing that's come out about it already. But the way that this used to work is that a dude with a acoustic guitar on YouTube would do like a solo version of a Beyonce song, like to distill that song to its essence and show you that it's like, it's actually a good song. You know, once you strip away all the artifice, you know, like it would be this sort of really condescending way of, of anointing her as real music. 
you know, and it's right. and that's not really what's happening here. Like, I, I think Ryan Adams and Taylor Swift have actually worked together. I guess I think he said at some point they were writing songs together, and then there's there's a clear respect that he has for her, and you know, he's he's coming at her, you know, as equals, as songwriting, as artistic equals, you know, and I think that shows. And you know, the way this would have worked five, ten years ago, is this would be like an indie, you know, underground, critically respected artist, like conferring legitimacy onto like a fabricated pop star, you know, but I think actually something akin to the reverse is happening here. Like it's for Ryan Adams, like people really love him and he's definitely got a cult sort of audience, but he's, he's also got like this giant catalog that you can't really wrap your head around. And there's been so many guises and so many phases that like, it's interesting that this record, like, even fans of his see it as like his most emotionally direct and his like most coherent thing that he's done in a really long time, you know, which means that like these songs in that album are like good enough, you know, to allow even another artist to come in and cover all of them and like make their own, you know, singular emotional statement out of it. Like it's, you know, it's, I, I think it speaks to, her songwriting ability and her artistry, you know, and that she's not like the prefabricated pop star that I think people are still sort of intent on painting her as. Well, let's t let's discuss that uh, because I think there might be a little bit of legitimacy to that. I'm not saying that's all she is and all she that she should be or whatever, but do you find Taylor Swift to be someone that through and through is 100% genuine and maybe she fights that because of the of the sheer power of the sheen of the of the pop record that was 1989 and to a certain extent red and i know she's crossed over from country but i don't i don't find taylor swift to be uh someone that is completely transparent but do you well it's sort of a fake idea in the first place like the real artist versus the fake artist you know like the way you think back to the grammys and you think you know when beck won the grammy over beyonce and people were passing around like the album credits just to show like how many people worked on beyonce's record and like how many co-writers she had and all that versus beck which was a lot smaller and you know how that i think it was just beck <laughs> yeah it might have been and and you know how that makes Beck the the purer and the more complete and the more real artist and i that's that's sort of a that's not really a real thing necessarily. Like, I, I don't think it makes Beyonce any less of an artist that she doesn't write all her own songs or anything like that. But even, even in the pop star universe, you know, Taylor Swift has had, is either the sole writer or a co-writer on every song that she's ever put out, you know, and in the, in the earlier records, the more country records, like he, she essentially wrote them all herself. You know, like in country, there's, you know, co-writers and, and sort of a communal thing is sort of the rule. But even among the pop stars, you think about Beyonce, Katy Perry, those kind of people, like she probably has more of a songwriting claim to her stuff than any of those other people. And again, that doesn't make her necessarily better than those people or more of an artist than those people. But, you know, it is notable that she's definitely more in a pop direction now. She's definitely glossier and more glamorous and sort of more image oriented than she used to be. But it's, you know, I, I think there's been an, a, a strong, like legitimate songwriting. She's been a legitimate songwriting presence through all of that, you know? And I think that what this Ryan Adams record sort of shows is that 
you know, you can't strip that record down and sort of reconstitute it and recast it, you know, from a 40 year old dude's perspective. And like the songs, the words, the record as a whole, like holds up, you know, and I think that's, you know, more to her credit even than it is to his. Yeah, I think there is something to that. But I also think that Ryan Adams is so singularly talented that you could give him a record that really isn't all that strong. Uh, that's a pop record, and he could repurpose that to his own vision. That's true. And he could, and he could make it sound good. I'm not saying that that's what happened here, because I do think a lot of what 1989 has, there, there's some strong songwriting. Although, like to me, "Welcome to New York" is just a brutal song. Like I just think it's a terrible, terrible song. I think even her fans really would back that one. Uh, so I mean, listen, it's you know. For for what Ryan Adams can do, I think he was the perfect person to take this on. But sure. when you want to use different instrumentation, I think you can pull off some of that, and really you can dress up a turd if you need to. And I'm not saying that '89 is because I don't I don't think 1989 is whatsoever. What there are so many different things I want to discuss with you on on Taylor Swift, and you yeah. had mentioned her her country songwriting. For those who are listening to this and might have a casual interest in Swift and only came to know her because of, or got interested in her because of the album Red, which came out in 2012 and then more so 1989. Swift from 2006, when she, she releases an album, I think she's 16 at that point, right? It's crazy. It's 16 from 2006 to 09 to 12 to 2015. What has her progression been like? And I guess, has it been, organic or has i think some people believe that there's a certain calculation to all of this and there's and there's a cynical approach to it but i think it's actually you know i'm not into swiss music but i actually think her progression to to pop music was inevitable well I, i mean again like who would you hold up as having an organic artist or an organic progression you know like i i think that my first question would be like what does that mean like what is i would say listen there's a there's a lot of reasonable and legitimate criticism of the pop country genre because it's not really country (laughs) for people that love country and listen you know we we're kind of dabbling in in a few different areas here but i i would say she could have easily gone from that uh into pop without I don't know, without real true, like she's done this and had legitimate praise and criticism for the way she's done it because of the craft of the songwriting and all that. And I would say if it was not her writing the songs and if a lot of it was just like truly disposable crap, then I would say then that, no, that wasn't organic. But for her to have mostly kept the reins on the songwriting, even though more people have had a hand in that in years recently, as opposed to the start of her career, I think that's the basis of what I'm coming at with Rob. You know, I mean, there's a certain amount of guile and calculation, you know, and market shrewdness that comes with, you know, putting out a record at all on a major label, you know. And so it's those early country records, you know, the self-titled one, you know, Fearless, even Speak Now, you know, those for a while there, immediately people were really into her and, and country music wasn't really talked about a lot critically 
you know, back in 2006, but there were the, sort of the smartest critics and the ones who were paying the most attention to country, which I think was a good idea. They, they sort of immediately flagged her as, as, as special in a way. And, and part of that is her youth and, and sort of the novelty of, you know, a teenage girl who's mostly writing her own songs and seems to be completely in control of her own image in a way that, that some pop stars don't seem to be. But it, it immediately people sort of knew that you were dealing with something special and it's again it's sort of a screwy thing but like it, it felt real like it, it it felt guileless and and her image from the beginning you know is as this this really genuine person and and you know and that got her into trouble in ways like like the thing the, the thing where she had the award the award show surprise face exactly that's i think one of the biggest yeah things where like every time and it's like come on like right. there seemed to be a certain calculation to that when it came to her image. I'm going to say, you know, I don't know her heart or her brain or anything, but I, I, I think that that comes from a real place and that she just sort of overdid it. And, and she sort of continued doing it past the point where she had become clearly a sort of a big deal. And there was clearly the expectation that she would win these things and have this success. Like, I think that started as a real thing and maybe even continued to be a real thing, but it just, it, it no longer matched where she was actually at in her career, you know, but it's, it's, you know, like you said, country music is, is, is a really sort of weird and sort of fascinating genre and which a lot of it isn't really country and like it's it's you know worse or different or, or even more so now in 2015 like now that sort of the bros have taken over you know and you're just as likely to hear like rap and funk or a lot of other things on country radio as you are to hear actual country like that that it's a genre that's already kind of pop you know it's not very traditionalist anymore there aren't really any boundaries and sort of the reason that she was able to cross over from country to pop as effortlessly as she did is because, you know, a crossover is barely even necessary anymore. You know, the difference between 1989 is the poppiest record she's ever done. And it's sort of styled to be a capital P pop record the way the other ones weren't. But there isn't like it isn't like a super stark thing. It's not like she went and did death metal or anything like there's a very logical progression to that. I actually think I'd like to hear a Taylor Swift. Yeah, death you know, metal record. that's coming. You know, she's young. <laughs> it's, it's, but in that same way, like I when you looked at her in 2006, the people were really paying attention and taking her seriously, critically. There was an immediate you know, recognition that you had something, you know, rare here and something that was real and, and, and something that was pretty sincere and pretty straightforward, you know, to a fault, definitely to a fault. But it's, you know, again, anybody working at this level and anyone who's now the most powerful person in music, which I think, you know, she is for better or worse, like there's a lot of calculation, you know, and a lot of machination behind that, you know, but I, I do think that there is still a core of it being like quote unquote the real her and and I even with not even with 1989 and even now that she's you know as much a think piece sort of generator as she is a musical artist like I I, I think that's hold, held true for her. All right, and with every podcast dedicated to a certain artist or band, I have the guest rank the studio records. So Taylor Swift have five, has five of them. So in whatever order that you think would be the, the proper order, however you want to list them. Five to one. What are your? How would you rank the Taylor Swift discography to this point in 2015? Oh, geez. Um, I'm gonna put Red at number one. Uh, that's the one from 2012. Um, 
you know, I, as I said, like, it's still technically a country record, but it's also a pretty incredibly poppy record. You know, it has We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. It has 22. It has I Knew You Were Trouble, like, you know, which is almost like a dubstep song. Like, that's that's where she really started becoming this person, this artist that she is now. But I think that there was still enough of a core of, of country that it sort of represented everything that she can do like it was sort of the complete package there's a song called all too well uh i believe it's a jake gyllenhaal song uh for you scoring at home but i i think that's her that's my single favorite taylor swift song i went mm. a couple weeks ago i was bummed she didn't play it but i i think as a collection of songs and i think it's sort of a showcase of all the different things that she can do that red is probably the best record she's made so far. Um, number two, I'd probably just say speak now the one before it, uh, 2010. Um, that's the one with you belong with me, which is probably still her biggest song, but it's got really a... bigger than shake it off. Ah, oh, gee. Yeah, you're right. That's, Hey, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just I'm asking. I wasn't sure. Also, I'm wrong. You belong with me isn't on this record. You well, belong with me is on the one before it. Okay. Say, Speak now is still my second favorite Taylor Swift record. It has the it has Dear John. It has the, the like the the gnarliest anti John Mayer song ever written, which is sort of a versioning subgenre of it. That's <laughs> a really good song. Um, Back to December is pretty good. Means pretty good. So yeah, I'd say that's still my second favorite. Um, I guess Fearless would be number three because it has You Belong With Me on it and I still like that song even as sort of overexposed as it's gotten um, when I saw her in concert a couple weeks ago here in Columbus, Ohio like the, the only old song that she played was Love Story um, which is on Fearless and is she sort of had this big rap at the beginning about how when she was young, when she was a teenager and she was writing songs, like she would write songs about love, but she hadn't really experienced it yet. And so she would write about what she thought it was like and what she read about in books. And so she said, this is love story. And this is me writing a happy ending to Romeo and Juliet, which is sort of like a, an objectively kind of corny thing, but, but at the same time, like she did it in a really effective way. And like, even though now she's playing it on a piano, while in like a crane sort of cage thing that's like flying around a hockey arena, you know, in the Midwest, like there's still sort of a core of, of, you know, teenage sincerity to that song and to that album that I think has sort of withstood like her ubiquity and sort of all the poppy, you know, celebrity type stuff that's happened since then. Uh, number four, I'd say probably 1989. Like I, I didn't really like that record when it came out and I sort of wrote a slightly ornery thing about it for dead spin, which I don't regret necessarily, but I listening to it in the last couple of weeks, getting ready for the show and then going back to it a little when this Ryan Adams thing happened, like it sort of grown on me, you know, and hearing some of the songs on the radio, I really like style. I like Wildest Dreams more than I thought I would. Like, 1989 has kind of grown on me, but I still think, you know, again, like, that's her doing a very specific thing, like, basically only doing the pop thing when I think at her best she can sort of bring in country a little bit more, and that gives you a much wider lens to work with. And you know, number five, I'd say her debut, which is, you know, sort of a debut album from a, you know, a debut country album. You know, and there was plenty of potential there. And like I said, the critics who were paying attention at that time, and I can't 
say that I was one, but the ones who were like saw something immediately and maybe couldn't have predicted anything that happened, but could tell you were dealing with someone really special. And I think that's still true, but you know, I, I, it is sort of her weakest overall, but you know, that's the way it's supposed to be if you do it right. And you mentioned, okay, so you went to a show, a Taylor Swift concert. Was it your first one or have you been to others? I saw her once. They do a thing in Nashville every year. It's called, the name keeps changing, but it's fanfare or something like that. It's in the summer. And like every major country artist comes in or stays in Nashville at the same time. And they do four nights of shows at the the football arena at the stadium that where the Titans play. And, you know, they have five or six like big name country artists play a night. And I went there once, I guess it was 2011. And she was a headliner you know, but she played with six other people. She played a set that was maybe a half hour, 40 minutes. And so th- this was my first headlining show. Okay, but, so... <laughs> but that show in Tennessee was already interesting because she was still like completely theoretically a country artist at that point. But it was sort of already obvious that she wouldn't be for long. There was there was something different about her. And she did sort of the thing where she would stop, you know, she would be doing stage banner and she would stop and sort of pose and everybody would cheer really, really loud. And it's, it's, it's sort of a simple elemental yeah. arena rock thing, but it felt weird for country. Like country still has this theoretical, like humble salt of the earth type thing, which is often sort of contrived itself. But like she, she felt different. She felt more like a pop star. She felt like she didn't belong there that she was, I don't know if above it or beyond it or just to the side of it, but you could tell something was happening even then, but no, this, this show that I went to a couple of weeks, I was last week, actually just in Columbus, Ohio at the, at the hockey arena. That was the first headlining show of hers that I have ever seen. Okay. So many questions from my end. Like one, did they even, <laughs> did they even sell beer there? And if there was, were you the only one in the beer line or non-line as it were? You know, it does. It sounds funny to say, but going to a Taylor Swift show is a good way to remind yourself that her audience is, still primarily teenage girls yeah so is it like is it what i think it would be in terms of like kind of unbearable high-pitched screaming like every 20 seconds it wasn't that high-pitched but it was pretty consistent like i my wife went with me and my wife really wanted earplugs like more for the the crowd and even for the music itself like it's it's potentially the loudest show that i've ever been to you know and i've been to like doom metal shows etc and so i there, there, there's, you definitely get a little bit of that, you know, you, you definitely, not that anyone paid attention to me for half a second, but I was kind of glad that my wife was there, you know, just so I was not, you know, the 30 something solo dude, you know, skulking around a Taylor Swift show. Me and my brother, my brother's in his thirties too. We went to see Katy Perry at the, at the same venue last year. And like, that was a slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> and so it's, yeah, like like the, the lines for the men's bathroom that were there were no lines for the men's bathroom. It was just, you know, three or four dudes chilling in there. Well, yeah. actually, you know what though? Here's the thing. Is and I did want to get to this so we can segue right here. Sure. There is certainly an element to Taylor Swift where it's not even become ironic. I know men in their 30s who genuinely enjoy you being one of them on this podcast and thus right like they genuinely enjoy Taylor Swift music. They seek to listen to it. They enjoy listening to it. It's not some kind of weird hipster statement thing. And I don't get this. I, 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 you know, it speaks to her dominance as a musician and as a celebrity these days. But why do you think that is? That it's not just, and not even teenage girls, like 
for a long while, you know, the female population under 40 has kind of enjoyed Taylor Swift, I feel. But there are certain – she is bringing in a certain male contingent there that I don't think anyone saw coming three, four years ago. You know, it might just be my rock critic bubble, but I feel like that sort of – I feel like for pop music as a whole, that's been sort of true for the last five or ten years. I don't know if there was a defining event or one person or one song that sort of brought it on, but I I don't think that pop is necessary – you know, it's – I don't know. I don't know if the Harry Potter movies are the right way to come at this, but it's it's music that's clearly made – with that demographic in mind, like that's, that's her first target audience, or at least it was on her earlier records, but I, it, you could easily enjoy it, you know, as quote unquote, an adult, as an adult male, like whatever you were, like, I, I don't think that the demographics of her music or pop music or really anybody's music anymore are as strict as they used to be. You know, like I, I, you know, I was a kid around the time of Madonna's like real, real, real dominance, but I, 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 I don't know if, if I get a sense of like there was the same sort of dynamic there. And if you were a 30 year old, 30 year old, you know, dude, you know, heterosexual dude, whatever, whatever, who loved Madonna, like if that was weird, if that made you seem weird, if it seemed weird to you, like, I don't know if that's true, but I definitely don't think it's true now. You know, like I said, like definitely the people paying, you know, 85 bucks for a nosebleed ticket to a Taylor Swift show in 2015, those tend to be you know, young girls, you know, and they're, they're grudging parents, you know, but I, I don't get the sense, like the idea of a guilty pleasure, you know, the idea that you're listening to something that isn't targeted to you. There's a difference between not targeted to you and not made for you. But I I know what you're talking about, like that Carly Rae Jepsen record that came out like a month ago and got like a really surprising amount of critical attention. Like a lot of really good pieces were written about it, both reviews and interviews with her and stuff like that. Like it's, she kind of came out and said, like, I'm looking to make like a credible pop record that really resounds with critics. And she sort of, she succeeded, you know, she did so well at that, that she didn't sell anything, which is kind of weird, but it's really, huh? But, but yeah, I was walking around listening to the Carly Rae Jepsen record and it's like, should I, is it weird that I'm listening to this? You know, is this made for me? Is this targeted toward me? Am I interloping? If that's even a word. And I, I think there's something to be said for that, but I don't think those boundaries are as are as sharp or as high or as clearly defined as they were, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I sort of have my suspicions about if they ever really were, you know, I, it, it, I think that was more about perception. And I, I you know, as a 30 something who, who genuinely thinks that Taylor Swift is is a great musician and a great songwriter and, and sort of, you know, if it's blasphemy to consider her on par with Ryan Adams, I apologize. But yeah, like I, I kind of do, you know, I, I think there's something to being able to resonate with an audience of the size that she has in 2015. I don't think that you can do that in a calculated and cynical and pandering way. You know, I, I think that that audience is smart enough now and has so many other choices now you have to be actually genuinely good. You have to be actually genuine. You have to be sincere and you have to be real and you have to scan as real, you know, to millions upon millions of people. Like, I, I don't think that you can get there in some sort of cynical, underhanded, fake kind of way. Okay, so here's my, here's my it's not a challenge to it, but a, but a question about it. I would say just a notch below Taylor Swift is Katy Perry. And 
Katy Perry's music, to me, is intentionally and purposefully marketed and packaged as a certain d fun, but like, there's no preconceived note. Like with Swift, you've got the singer-songwriter. She probably wrote some, if not all, of the song. You don't have that with Katy Perry whatsoever. And yet Katy Perry is hitting a global audience as well. So I wonder if what you're saying has absolute truth to it or not, because I still think just because something that just because there might be an artist or a song that a lot of people like, it doesn't necessarily mean it's immune to sincere criticism. I don't, I don't, you, you know, like, do we, do we really, do we really find a lot of what Katy Perry is offering to be something that will last 30 years from now? I don't, I don't think so. And I think time is a lot of the, the ultimate test here. And I don't even know if I can necessarily say it about Taylor Swift yet. I know you and plenty of Taylor Swift, uh, defenders will will say that but i'm not i'm not sure we're there yet yeah i mean i don't mean to imply that taylor swift is above or beyond sort of criticism you know either as a yeah i know i know I, yeah, I, it sounded like you were going toward like if this many people like what she's doing and she's this successful there's got to be you know i don't know you kind of get what i was getting at there enough truth to it you yeah. know i but i agree with you and i i see what you're saying and is Taylor Swift a better songwriter than Katy Perry? Like, yeah, definitely. You know, it's I, just sort of empirically, I think that's true. I think Katy Perry is, is by leagues, like a more cartoonish figure. You know, I think that, you know, the sort of left shark, you know, breast cannon sort of confetti, like weirdness, you know, rainbow unicorn aspect of Katy Perry is as important to her sometimes as the songs are. Like, that's it's definitely a different way to play it. Um, <laughs> and it's true that it, the fact that you connect with millions of people doesn't necessarily mean that it's any good, but I, you know, I think that Katy Perry has been doing it for long enough and has survived like enough changing trends and, and that, you know, there's, there's something that people are connecting to on a human level with her as well. It's a lot weirder. It's a lot screwier, you know, it's a lot less direct, than it is with Taylor Swift, but I, there's, there's gotta be someone there, you know, beneath all the artifice that, that people are connecting to on some level, or they would just move on to, you know, someone newer and shinier and, you know, younger. Okay. So why, so why does someone like Lady Gaga go through a massive makeover then? Cause she certainly, Lady Gaga was almost in, in a, in a weird simpleton way, a blend of Taylor Swift and Katy Perry in that singer songwriter. Really, right. really talented. Uh, to me, to me, clearly the most musically talented of, uh, and just in my opinion, it would be Lady Gaga. But she no longer is dressing up in meat suits and has ridiculous costumes. Maybe that comes back into style in 2017. I don't know. But what would your theory be on why she is suddenly stripped away from that and is doing projects with Tony Bennett and right. clearly is is going down a different path? Again, is this or is this again, you know? Or, organic growth in a, in a certain way with with her. I think that Lady Gaga got too weird. I think it's I think it's really really amazing that someone as genuinely strange and sort of deliberately unsettling as Lady Gaga got as famous as she got. Um, and I, I I think it just hit this fever pitch that she couldn't sustain. Like the the, the art pop album was just too crazy. And, and too over the top, you know, and like one of the only good songs had R. Kelly on it. So, you know, that's that's a watch. <laughs> uh, it, it, 
she she just hit like a, a peak weirdness sort of moment where there was nowhere else to go. Like once you've worn a meat suit, you're sort of out of ideas. You know, I, I, I see Miley Cyrus as heading down that same road where there's 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 a core of of genuine genuine musical talent and like extreme charisma there, but she's just getting weirder and weirder and druggier and druggier and pornier and pornier and, and more shocking and more shocking. And you, you collapse at some point, you know? And I think going back to what I said, like something that impresses me about Katy Perry is like the last record she put out isn't the biggest one she's ever put out, but like, it's hard to be in that lane to be, you know, the surrealist sort of sexualized pop lane and like sustain yourself. So it never gets too extreme. So you never get like a backlash, you know, so you never get to the point where you can't top yourself and you sort of collapse trying to top yourself, you know, and I, Lady Gaga is extremely talented and has a lot of other things she can do. And it was totally sort of a legitimate move for her to go legit or whatever and do the Tony Robbins record, you know, and like saying, was it the sound of music that she sang at the Oscars and like do the, yeah, Lady that Gaga. was really random. Right. Like the Lady Gaga can really sing thing. Like, like she can fall back on that, you know, and now she's going to be on American horror story, which I don't know if that's proof of legitimacy or, you know, weirdness or both, but it's, that's sort of an arc that people go through, especially people who go from weirder, more surrealist, more sexualized thing. And, and Taylor Swift is sort of more middle of the road and always coming from a place of like sitting in her bedroom with like a guitar, you know, in a way that Katy Perry and even Lady Gaga and Miley Cyrus really haven't. Right. And so Gaga, Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, Miley Cyrus, Beyonce... These yeah. are all extremely popular women in music, but the argument can be made that they are celebrities first, musicians second. And I would say really only Taylor Swift could really fight back against that. And even now with how big she is, like it's, it might even be a little hard for, they're such dominating and not, not like these are the first women or musicians or artists to, to do this. This is something that's been a part of, mainstream music for decades upon decades but to me it it seems to be hitting a point of uh, saturation that i don't think we have seen before i don't know if it says anything about our current media culture and how we intake things but to me it seems as much about you know just it's not as much about the music i guess I, as i think it should be or would be or i don't know i'm definitely i'm not a huge modern pop fan and I, it's probably because i'm getting older and you know that's just part of the deal with aging that's part of the deal. i mean it, it probably is but but rob also on a certain level like yes music is evolving and that's part of it too but i don't know i'm not i'm not seeing as much as they're there with a lot of these songs like beyonce and i've had this discussion with other people like beyonce is this massively popular figure on the planet and yep. to me she doesn't have hooks like she's just good because she's beyonce and she's got a universe of an army behind her point me to the hooks since she left destiny's child they're not really there save for maybe one or two songs but yet she is incredibly popular so to me it's kind of amazing how handlers and publicists and marketing can kind of get this select group of artists to this point where they're just 
world dominators, and it's a matter of maintaining that as long as possible. Again, referencing to what you said, going through as many phases and kind of yeah. keeping keeping your balance as long as you can until inevitably, you know, it passes you by. Well, first of all, I wouldn't talk mess about Beyonce on Twitter if I were you. I know. Uh, lest God. you be set upon, you know, by the Bayhive, I believe. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, uh, I have to admit, as a guy who has done drunken love at karaoke, it was an incredibly bad idea. I, it sounded different in my head than it did in reality. I can't say we've all been there, man. It's cool. It sounded in my head, or or what I was going for, but like, I had the Beyonce record, you know, the surprise one that she put out whenever that was, 2012, 2013. Like that's one of my favorite records of the past five years. Uh, in terms of pointing you toward hooks. Ooh, uh, put, a, put a ring on it has a hook yeah that would be that's the one that comes to mind drunk in love doesn't have a hook crazy in love exo exo i think is my favorite song on that record like it's that's a subjective thing but i it's i don't just, think i don't think hooks are a subjective thing because i think hooks are what make popular music and so while there might be certain songs with hooks that never get popular in general, I, I think a hook is a hook. I understand to a certain level it can be subjective, but I don't know. It's what's always amazed me about Beyonce. And she's definitely got talent. Like, she can sing. My God, I think she's got an amazing voice. Like, crazy yeah. talent. And more than anything, that's why she should be where she is. Uh, but overall, I don't know. I'm fascinated by how certain artists male, female, bands, non-bands, whatever, get yeah. to this huge level of fame, and they're not arriving there by the means of pure songwriting the way they once were, I guess. I don't know. I'm definitely old man on the porch here to a certain extent, and I'm not even angry about it. I'm just fascinated by that's how it's become. Well, again, I was... I'm I'm curious as to how it really was back then and, and whether you can say the same thing now, whether you could say about Madonna that she didn't get there through the music, you know, whether you could say that about like Prince or about uh, Jackson or about... I think uh, Prince is an insanely talented musician and one of the best guitarists ever. Like That's true, but like the, the visual appeal, like the sex appeal, like the style appeal... Like back when MTV was sort of the law of the land, like that was as much about image. It was much more about image than it was about music. Like, I, I don't, I think you sort of get it in trouble when you point to the time we're living in now as more imaged focus it's, it, than it was, you know, 30 years ago. Like, it's definitely the internet has made everything very different, you know, and, and much faster. But I, I, I wonder, I, I'm genuinely curious if, if it can be said that the 80s, that the 90s, that the 70s or the 60s were like sort of a golden moment for like music. I don't think they were. And I hopefully people listening aren't totally getting that impression off of my uh, my musings here. I just think that artists now are reaching certain levels of fame and popularity Right. with it being less about the music than it was before. I think that has always been there with music. Being sure. back to the... When we didn't even al have albums, and in the late 50s, early 60s, it was all about packaging a certain song with a certain look. Like, that's always been there. Yeah. But I don't I don't think it's ever been a situation like we have now. And it's a lot of it's current media. I don't know. Um, well, like I said, like, going to a Taylor Swift show and realizing, oh, it's mostly teenage girls who are into this. Like, you know, as... 
as somebody working in media in 2015, like Taylor Swift is like a content provider. Yes. You know, and you, you have, you have hot takes, you know, on her latest video, on her Instagram posts. And like, there's a lot of legitimately good writing and a lot of legitimately good thinking that come out of that. But like, she's as much, you know, she's as much like a placeholder, you know, and, and a conversation starter than she is a musician for a lot of people, you know, and, and, and that, that's a weird dichotomy. And she's definitely kind of suffered from it. You know, like I said, back when, you know, back when her feigning surprise, maybe at winning awards was the most like quote unquote problematic thing about her, you know, lots of other weirder stuff has kind of come up. Like the biggest thing that ever happened to Taylor Swift in absolute terms was, was the VMAs thing. Was Dude. I, okay. That's the, that's the exact point where she went, you know, and it, it's sort of around that song, which was one of, one of her biggest songs. But like, that's the moment where she became capital T, capital S, Taylor Swift. That, you read my mind, man, because I was going to ask you about that. And by the way, that was in 2009. Like before yeah. we before we agreed to do this podcast, or at, when we agreed to it, I just did a little bit of homework, tried to read up on Swift and what I might or might not know. If you sure. would, I would, I would have guessed 2011. Like, I cannot believe that it has been more than six years since that happened. It's it's just, it doesn't seem that long ago. But it's shocking when Kanye got up and said Beyonce had the greatest video. But that was my other question, Rob. But that was really, that was her, you know, when she crossed the Rubicon of public consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's, I mean, and that's, you know, the VMAs that just happened a month ago or whatever. Like, that was a major, major subtext. Like, that's... I was thinking about it. that's probably objectively the single biggest thing that has ever happened at the VMAs, like the most resonance. I, I hope somebody doesn't tell me what the obvious thing I'm missing is, but like we're still talking about that. You know, we're still giving Kanye West, you know, a video Vanguard award with the subtext that she'll be presenting it. Like that's it's still a major part of both of their narratives, you know, and as big a deal to their images and to their trajectories as pop stars than, than most, if not all, of their actual records, of their actual songs, you know? So there's definitely something, too, to the idea that these people become more celebrities than they do musicians, you know, and that it's sort of easy to forget the music given all the white noise. But I, you know, for her, for, for the fans of these people, for the devoted fans of these people, you know, I think they do better you know, than people, than, you know, website editors do at sort of separating, you know, the signal from the noise. Sure. Now, going forward, kind of wrapping up here, what do we think she's going to, what will Taylor Swift be come 2017, come 2020? Is she hitting a groove here where we might see her next two or three records be similar to 1989 or... Do you think we'll see a progression? Whereas, you know, you look at what she was when she was pretty much country pop, then pop country, then pop pop country, and then now just straight pop all the way through. Do you think we're going to get more into dubstepy techno stuff? Which I know she's Jeez. she's she's definitely got into that. I don't know if she'll get into it even heavier, but what do you expect from her career in the next five years? Because, again, she is only 25, which is amazing. Yeah. It's it's She's so young and could easily have 20 years of dominance ahead of her if she hits all the right notes, pun intended. Um, I don't think there's any going back once you've formally declared yourself a pop star and, like, you know, objectively become one. Like, you don't go back to country 
from there. I, you know, until you do like your very explicit, I'm going back to country, like return to my roots record, which I would not anticipate in the next five, 10 years. Like, you know, I think she makes major deal, like number one album of the year, pop records, at least for the next five years, it's sort of dangerous, I guess, to project any farther out, you know, acts of God and so forth. Uh, But I, it's hard to say has she peaked is she how do you peak what does that mean but like (laughs) she's going to be a very 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 big deal for a very 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 long time you know and i so i guess i would anticipate musically sticking with the direction of of 1989 of, of being pure pop and being able to to fall back on the country thing if she wants to eventually as sort of as sort of a deliberate pivot, you know, and, that, and that's not going to be any kind of prodigal son kind of thing. Like that's, you know, that's another thing that she can do when she's done a couple more pop records and just to sort of mix it up a little bit. Like it's hard to imagine, you know, or knows what the trends of musical trends will be in the next five, 10 years. But I, I don't see her, you know, making like a straight up EDM record or whatever is the next thing coming down the pike. I, it's, yeah, but I, I do think that she's a, a legitimate, you know, pop star right now, both musically and in terms of the celebrity. And I, I, I think that's going to continue. And in terms of can she get any bigger, like it's sort of hard to say. But, you know, I, I, I do think that I do think you're stuck with her for a good long while. She's only one of a handful of artists that can legitimately go on a stadium tour right now. There are not many in America that are yeah. capable, which is impressive in its own right. Um, and listen, this is this is a person who moved to Nashville when she was in middle school with yeah. the explicit intent of wanting to become a music star. Her family did it. And I think the reason why she has set herself up for success, supreme relevance, is she is not shy at all about collaboration. If you look at the stuff she's done, the people she's worked with, where those people in the music business have come from, sure. the different trees and forests that they've come from to kind of work with her. A lot of collaborations, and that's to her benefit, because I think it probably will ultimately make her music uh, stronger and certainly well-respected. She's not she's not going to just hide herself away and only work with three or four people on the next record. Or you know, She has so many strong bonding relationships right now that right. I think that, that, as much as anything, Rob, in my opinion, is what, is what sets her up for another decade of of being if not the top pop star in america certainly on in the, you know that top two or three yeah i mean definitely what she's doing now which is sort of bizarre is like squatting up you know like she's very deliberately cultivating like this this you know the bad blood video in which like every you know female celebrity female on earth appeared you know and, and bringing out people every night on stage and and yeah on her tour right her Instagram has sort of become, you know, she's she's amassing friends, you know, both actual friends and quote unquote friends. And like, you know, eventually she's going to reconcile with Katy Perry, like dollars to donuts on stage at the VMAs. And it's gonna <laughs> this thing. It's like there's there are obvious cycles that you go through here. But like, yeah, she's we're definitely into a strategic kind of phase where she's sort of taking over the world, you know, risk style or whatever. And then that's definitely going to continue. He is Rob Harvilla. You can follow him on Twitter at Harvilla. He is a culture editor for Deadspins. He has worked there. So be sure to check him out as well. 
Rob, I appreciate you having having you on here and oh, for you to come on. And, yeah, no, awesome. And uh, down down the way, maybe we'll get you back on uh, in a future season to to chat about something else as well. But but I appreciate you uh, coming on so much. Well, thanks very much, man. Uh, thank you. And for anyone listening, listen. Be sure to check out the other episodes on the Records and Risk podcast. Rate and review; those are always very much appreciated. To the Taylor Swift fans that might have only explicitly come for this episode and listened to it, well, thank you so much. I'm Matt Norlander, and you've been listening to the Records and Rift podcast.